too. Oman, Habi Dinwad appeared to be a light pink union suit of an exceptionable cut and material, appeared above the head of the pseudo-chief executive, suspended at the end of a wire, never having heard that it was White House etiquette to hang young ladies on wires above the presidential head. I consulted my program and thereby learned that this young lady represented that species of poultry so popular always with the late Secretary of State, Mr. Bryan, and so popular also at one time with the President himself, namely, the Dove of Peace. The applause was thunderous. At the sound of the star-spangled banner, a few members of the audience arose to their feet, others soon followed some of them apparently with reluctance until at last the entire house had risen. Meanwhile the members of the company lined up before the footlights, the mock president smirking at the center, the half-clad girls posing, the pink young lady dangling above, the band blaring, the stars and stripes away. It was a scene, in hall, about as conducive to genuine or creditable national pride as would be the scene of a debauch in some fabulous harem. The difference between stupidity and satire lies, not infrequently, in the intent with which a thing is done. Presented without essential change upon the stage of a music hall in some foreign land, the scene just described would, at that time, when we were playing a timid part amongst the nations, have been accepted, not as a glorification of the United States, but as having a precisely opposite significance. It would have been taken for burlesque, burlesque upon our country, our president, our national spirit, our peace policy, our army and perhaps also upon our women and insulting burlesque at that, some years since, it was found necessary to pass a law prohibiting the use of the flag for advertising purposes, this law should be amended to protect it also from the even more sordid and vulgarizing associations to which it is not infrequently submitted on the American musical comedy stage, in the morning, before I was awake, my companion arrived at the hotel, and, going to his room, opened the door connecting it with mine, Coming out of my slumber with that curious and not altogether pleasant sense of being stared at, I found his eyes fixed upon me, and noticed immediately about him the air of virtuous superiority which is assumed by all who have risen early, whether they have done so by choice or have been shaken awake. Hello, I said, had breakfast? No, I thought we could breakfast together if you felt like getting up, though the phraseology of this remark was unexceptionable. I knew what it meant. What it really meant was, shame on you, lying there so lazy after sunup. Look at me, all dressed and ready to begin. I arose at once, for all that I don't like to get up early. It recalled old times, and was very pleasant, to be away with him again upon our travels, to be in a strange city and a strange hotel, preparing to set forth on explorations, for he is the best, the most charming, the most observant of companions, and also one of the most patient. That is one of his greatest qualities his patience. Throughout our other trip he always kept on being patient with me. No matter what I did. Many a time instead of pushing me down an elevator shaft. Drowning me in my bath. Or coming in at night and smothering me with a pillow. He has nearly sighed. Dropped into a chair. And sat there shaking his head and staring at me with a melancholy. Ruminative. Hopeless expression such an expression as may come into the face of a dumb man when he looks at a waiter who has spilled an oyster cocktail on him. All this is good for me. It has a chastening effect. Therefore in a spirit happy yet not exuberant. Eager yet controlled. Hopeful yet a little bit afraid. I dressed myself hurriedly. Breakfasted with him eating ham and eggs because he approves of ham and eggs. 
and after breakfast set out in his society to obtain what despite my walk of the night before I felt was not alone my first real view of Baltimore, but my first glimpse over the threshold of the South, into the land of aristocracy and hospitality, of mules and mammies, of plantations, porticos, and proud, flirtatious bells, of colonels, cotton, chivalry, and colored cooking. Chapter III Where the climates meet here, where the climates meet, that each may make the others lack complete Sydney veneer, because Baltimore was built, like Rome, on seven hills, and because trains run under it instead of through. The passing traveler sees but little of the city, his view from the train window being restricted first to a suburban district, then to a black tunnel, then to a glimpse upward from the railway cut, in which the station stands. These facts, I think, combined to leave upon his mind an impression which, if not actually unfavorable, is at least negative, for certainly he has obtained no just idea of the metropolis of Maryland. Let it be declared at the outset, then, that Baltimore is not in any sense to be regarded as a suburb of Washington. Indeed, considering the two merely as cities situated side by side, and eliminating the highly specialized features of Washington, Baltimore becomes, according to the standards by which American cities are usually compared, the more important city of the two, being greater both in population and in commerce. In this aspect Baltimore may, perhaps, be pictured as the commercial half of Washington, and while Washington, as capital of the United States, has certain physical and cosmopolitan advantages, not only over Baltimore, but over every other city on this continent, it must not be forgotten that, upon the other hand, every other city has one vast advantage over Washington, namely, a comparative freedom from politicians, to be sure, Congress did once move over to Baltimore and sit there for several weeks, but that was in 1776, when the British approached the Delaware in the days before the pork barrel was invented, as a city Baltimore has marked characteristics, though south of Mason and Dixon's line, and though sometimes referred to as the metropolis of the south, as is New Orleans also, it is in character neither a city entirely northern nor entirely southern, but one which partakes of the qualities of both, where, in the words of Sidney Lanier, the climates meet, and where northern and southern thought and custom meet, as well, this has long been the case, thus, although slaves were held in Baltimore before the Civil War, a strong abolitionist society was formed there during Washington's first administration, and the sentiment of the city was thereafter divided on the slavery question, thus also, while the two candidates of the divided Democratic Party who ran against Lincoln for the presidency in 1860 were nominated at Baltimore, Lincoln himself was nominated there by the Union Republican Party in 1864. Speaking of the blending of North and South in Baltimore, you will, of course, remember that the 6th Massachusetts Regiment was attacked by a mob as it passed through the city on the way to the Civil War. The regiment arrived in Baltimore at the old President Street Station which was then the main station of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and which, now used as a freight station, looks like an old wartime woodcut out of Harper's Weekly. It was the custom in those days to hitch horses to passenger coaches which were going through and draw them across town to the Baltimore and Ohio station, but when it was attempted thus to transport the northern troops a mob gathered and blocked the Pratt Street Bridge over Jones's Falls, forcing the soldiers to leave the cars and march through Pratt Street, along the waterfront where they were attacked, it island however, a noteworthy fact that Mayor Brown of Baltimore bravely preceded the troops and attempted to stop the rioting, a few days later the city was occupied by northern troops, 
and the warship Harriet Lane anchored at a point off Calvert Street, whence her guns commanded the business part of town. After this there was no more serious trouble. Moreover, it will be remembered that though Maryland was represented by regiments in both armies, the state, torn as it was by conflicting feeling, nevertheless held to the Union. A pretty sequel to the historic attack on the 6th Massachusetts occurred when the same regiment passed through Baltimore in 1898, on its way to the Spanish War. On this occasion it was attacked again in the streets of the city, but the missiles thrown, instead of paving stones and bricks, were flowers. Continuing the category of contrasts, one may observe that while the general appearance of Baltimore suggests a northern city rather than a southern one Philadelphia, for instance, rather than Richmond Baltimore society is strongly flavored with the tradition and the soft pronunciation of the south, particularly of Virginia and the eastern shore, so, too, the city's position on the border line is reflected in its handling of the Negro, of American cities, Washington has the largest Negro population. 94.446. New York and New Orleans follow with almost as many, and Baltimore comes forth with 84.749. According to the last census, New York has one Negro to every 51 whites, Philadelphia one to every 17 whites, Baltimore one to every six, Washington a Negro to every two and a half whites, and Richmond not quite two whites to every Negro. Although Baltimore follows Southern practice in maintaining separate schools for Negro children, and in segregating Negro residences to certain blocks, she follows Northern practice in casting a considerable Negro vote at elections, and also in not providing separate seats for Negroes in her streetcars. Have you ever noticed how cities sometimes seem to have their own especial colors? Paris is white and green even more so, I think, than Washington. Chicago is gray. So is London usually, though I have seen it both at the beginning of a heavy fog. New York used to be a brown sandstone city, but is now turning to a one of cream-colored brick and tile. Naples is brilliant with pink and blue and green and white and yellow, while as for Baltimore, her old houses and her new are, as Baedeker puts it, of cheerful red brick, not always, of course, but often enough to establish the color of red brick as the city's predominating hue and with the red brick houses particularly the older ones go clean white marble steps, on the bottom one of which, at the side, may usually be found an old-fashioned iron scraper, doubtless left over from the time not very long ago when the city pavements had not reached their present excellence. The color of red brick is not confined to the center of the city, but spreads to the suburbs, fashionable and unfashionable. At one margin of the town I was shown solid blocks of pleasant red brick houses which, I was told, were occupied by workmen and their families, and were to be had at a rentless from 10 to 20 dollars a month, for though Baltimore has a lower east side which, like the lower east side of New York, encompasses the ghetto and Italian quarter, she has not tenements in the New York sense, one sees no tall, cheap flat houses draped with fire escapes and built to make herding places for the poor, many of the houses in this section are instead the former homes of fashionables who have moved to other quarters of the city handsome old homesteads with here and there a lovely though battered doorway sadly reminiscent of an earlier elegance so also red brick permeates the prosperous suburbs such as roland park and guilford where in a sweetly rolling country which lends itself to the arrangement of graceful winding roads and softly contoured plantings stand quantities of pleasing homes lately built many of them colonial houses of red brick. Indeed, 
It struck us that the only parts of Baltimore in which Red Brick was not the dominant note were the downtown business section and Mount Vernon Place. Mount Vernon Place is the center of Baltimore. Everything begins there, including Baedeker, who, in his little red book, gives it the asterisk of his approval, says that it suggests Paris in its tasteful monuments and surrounding buildings, and recommends the view from the top of the Washington Monument. This monument, standing upon an eminence at the point where Charles and Monument Streets would cross each other were not their courses interrupted by the pleasing parked space of Mount Vernon Place, is a gray stone column, surmounted by a figure of Washington or, rather, by the point of a lightning rod under which the figure stands. Other monuments are known as this monument or that, but when the monument is spoken of, the Washington Monument is inevitably meant. This is quite natural for it is not only the most simple and picturesque old monument in Baltimore, but also the largest, the oldest, and the most conspicuous, its proud head, rising high in air, having for nearly a century dominated the city, one catches glimpses of it down the street or that, or sees it from afar over the housetops, and sometimes, when the column is concealed from view by intervening buildings, and only the surmounting statue shows above them, one is struck by a sudden apparition of the father of his country strolling fantastically upon some distant roof, though it may be true that Mount Vernon Place, with its symmetrical park center and its admirable bronzes several of them by Barry, suggests Paris, and though it is certainly true that it is more like a Parisian square than a London square, nevertheless it is in reality an American square perhaps the finest of its kind in the United States, if it were Parisian. It would have more trees and the surrounding buildings would be uniform in color and in cornice height. It is perhaps as much like Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia as any other, and that resemblance is of the slightest, for Mount Vernon Place has a quality altogether its own. It has no skyscrapers or semi-skyscrapers to throw it out of balance, and though the structures which surround it are of white stone, brown stone, and red brick, and of anything but homogeneous architecture. Nevertheless a comparative uniformity of height, a universal solidity of construction, and a general grace about them, combined to give the place an air of equilibrium and dignity and elegance, including the Washington Monument. Baltimore has three lofty landmarks, likely to be particularly noticed by the roving visitor. Of the remaining two, one is the old brick shop tower in the lower part of town, which legend tells us was put up without the use of scaffolding nearly a hundred years ago, while the other, a more modern, if less modest structure, proudly surmounts a large commercial building and is itself kept by the gigantic effigy of a bottle. This bottle is very conspicuous because of its emplacement, because it revolves, and because it is illuminated at night. You can never get away from it. One evening I asked a man what the bottle meant up there. It's a memorial to Emerson. He told me. Are they so fond of Emerson down here? I don't know as they are so all fired fond of him. He answered. But they must be fond of him to put up such a big memorial. Why, even in Boston, where he was born, they had no such memorial as that. He put it up himself, said the man. That struck me as strange. It seemed somehow out of character with the great philosopher. Also, I could not see why, if he did wish to erase a memorial to himself, he had elected to fashion it in the form of a bottle and put it on top of an office building. I suppose there is some sort of symbolism about it. I suggested, now you got it, approved the man, I gazed at the tower for a while in thought, then I said, do you suppose that Emerson meant something like this, that human life or, indeed, the soul, may be likened to the contents of a bottle, 
that day by day we use up some portion of the contents call it, if you like, the nectar of existence until the fluid of life runs low, and at last is gone entirely, leaving only the husk, as it were or, to make the metaphor more perfect, the shell, or empty bottle, the container of what Emerson himself called, if I recollect correctly, the soul that make all do you suppose he meant to teach us some such thing as that, the man looked a little confused by this deep and beautiful thought, he might have meant that, he said, somewhat dubiously, but they tell me Captain Emerson's a practical man, and I reckon what he mainly meant was that he made his money out of this here bromo seltzer, and he was darn glad of it, so he thought he'd put him up a big bromo seltzer bottle as a kind of cross between a monument and an ad, if the bottle tower represents certain modern concepts of what is suitable in architecture, it is nevertheless pleasant to record the fact that many honorable old buildings most of them residences survive in Baltimore, and that, because of their survival, the city looks older than New York and fully as old as either Philadelphia or Boston, but in this, appearances are misleading, for New York and Boston were a century old, and Philadelphia half a century, when Baltimore was first laid out as a town, efforts to start a settlement near the city's present site were, it is true, being made before William Penn and his Quakers established Philadelphia, but a letter written in 1687 by Charles Calvert, 3rd Baron Baltimore, explains that, the people there are not affecting to build near each other but so as to have their houses near the waters for convenience of trade and their lands on each side of and behind their houses, by which it happens that in most places there are not 50 houses in the space of 30 miles, from, historic towns of the southern states, the difficulty experienced by the barons Baltimore, lords proprietary of Maryland, in building up communities in their domain was not a local problem but one which confronted those interested in the development of the entire portion of this continent now occupied by the southern states. Generally speaking, towns came into being more slowly in the south than in the north, and it seems probable that one of the principal reasons for this may be found in the fact that settlers throughout the south live generally at peace with the Indians, whereas the northern settlers were obliged to congregate in towns for mutual protection. Thus, in colonial days, while the many cities of New York and New England were coming into being, the South was developing its vast and isolated plantations, farms on the St. Lawrence River and on the Detroit River, where the French were settling, were very narrow and very deep, the idea being to arrange the houses close together on the river front, but on such rivers as the Potomac, the Rappahannock and the James, no element of early fear is to be traced in the form of the broad baronial plantations, nevertheless. When Baltimore began at last to grow, she became a prodigy, not only among American cities, but among the cities of the world. Her first town directory was published in 1796, and she began the next year as an incorporated city, with a mayor, a population of about 20,000, and a curiously assorted early history containing such odd items as that the first umbrella carried in the United States was brought from India and imperiled in Baltimore in 1772 that the town had for some time possessed such other full articles as a fire engine, a brick theater, a newspaper, and policemen, that the streets were lighted with oil lamps, that such proud signs of metropolitanism as riot and epidemic were not unknown, that before the revolution bachelors were taxed for the benefit of his Britannic Majesty, and that at fair time the lid was off, and the citizen or visitor who wished to get himself arrested must needs be diligent indeed. Chapter I.B. Triumphant Defeat There are some defeats more triumphant than victories. Montaigne, following the incorporation of the city, 
Baltimore grew much as Chicago was destined to grow more than a century later, within less than 30 years, when Chicago was a tiny village. Baltimore had become the third city in the United States, a city of wealthy merchants engaged in an extensive foreign trade, for in those days there was an American merchant marine, and the swift, rakish Baltimore clippers were known the seven seas over. The story of modern Baltimore is entirely unrelated to the city's early history. It consists in a simple but inspiring record of regeneration springing from disaster. It is the story of Chicago, of San Francisco, of Galveston, of Dayton, and of many a smaller town, a cataclysm, a few days of despair, a return of courage, and another beginning. Imagine yourself being tucked into bed one night by your valet or your maid, as the case may be. Come in the feeling that all was secure, that your business was returning a handsome income that your stocks and bonds were safe in the strong box, that the prosperity of your descendants was assured, then imagine ruin coming like lightning in the night, in the morning you are poor, your business, your investments, your very hopes, are gone, everything is wiped out, the labor of a lifetime must be begun again, such an experience was that of Baltimore in the fire of 1904, on the sickening morning following the conflagration to Baltimore men, friends of mine, walked down Charles Street to a point as near the ruined region as it was possible to go. Well, said one, surveying the smoking crater, what do you think of it? Baltimore is gone, was the response. We are off the map. How many citizens of Chicago, of San Francisco, of Galveston, of Dayton have known the anguish of that first aftermath of hopelessness? How many citizens of Baltimore knew it that day? And yet how bravely and with what magic swiftness had these cities risen from their ruins? Was not Rome burned? Was not London? And is it not? Then, time for men to learn from the history of other men and other cities that disaster does not spell the end, but is oftentimes another name for opportunity. Always, after disaster to a city, come improvements. But because disaster not only cleans this lake but simultaneously stuns the mind, a portion of the opportunity is invariably lost. The task of rebuilding, of widening a few streets, looks large enough to him who stands amidst destruction and there, consequently, improvement usually stops. That is why the downtown boulevard system of Chicago has yet to be completed, in spite of the fact that it might with little difficulty have been completed after the Chicago fire although it is only just to add that city planning was almost an unknown art in America at that time and that also is why the hills of San Francisco are, not terraced, as it was suggested they should be after the fire, but remain today inaccessible to frontal attack by even the maddest mountain goat of a taxi driver, these matters are not mentioned in the way of criticism, I have only admiration for the devastated cities and for those who built them up again, I call attention to lost opportunities with something like reluctance and only in the wish to emphasize the fact that our crippled or destroyed cities do invariably rise again, and that if the next American city to sustain disaster shall but have this simple lesson learned in advance, it may thereby register a new high mark in municipal intelligence and a new record among the rebuilt cities, by making more sweet than any other city ever made them. The uses of adversity. The fire of 1904 found Baltimore a town of narrow highways, old buildings, bad pavements, and open gutter drains, the streets were laid in what is known as, southern cobble, which is the next thing to no pavement at all, being made of irregular stones, large and small, laid in the dirt and tamped down, for bumps and ruts there is no pavement in the world to be compared with it, there were no city sewers, outside a few affluent neighborhoods, 
the citizens of which club together to build private sewers. The cesspool was in general use, while domestic drainage emptied into the roadside gutters. These were made passable, at crossings, by stepping stones, about the bases of which passate interesting armadas of potato peelings, floating, upon wash days, in water having the fine Mediterranean hue which comes from diluted bluing. Everybody seemed to find the entire system adequate, for, it was argued, the hilly contours of the city caused the drainage quickly to be carried off, while as for typhoid and mosquitoes well, there had always been typhoid and mosquitoes, just as there had always been these open gutters, it was all quite good enough, then the fire, and then the upbuilding of the city not only of the acres and acres comprising the burn section, in which streets were widened and skyscrapers arose where fire traps had been but outside the fire zone, where sewers were put down and pavements laid, nor was the change merely physical, with the old buildings, the old spirit of laces fair went up in smoke, and in the embers a municipal conscience was born, almost as though by the light of the flames which engulfed it, the city began to see itself as it had never seen itself before, to take account of stock, to plan broadly for the future, nor has the newborn spirit died, only last year an extensive red light district was closed effectively and once for all, Baltimore is today free from flagrant commercialized vice, and if not quite all the old cobble pavements and open gutter drains have been eliminated, there are but few of them left left almost as though for purposes of contrast and the Baltimorean who takes you to the ghetto and shows you these ancient remnants may immediately thereafter escort you to the Felswally, where the other side of the picture is presented, the Felswally is a brand new boulevard of pleasing aspect the peculiar feature of which is that it is nothing more or less than a cover over the top of Jones's Falls, which figured in the early history of Baltimore as a water course, but which later came to figure as a great, open, trunk sewer. Everyone in Baltimore is proud of the Fellswally, but particularly so are the city engineers who carried the work through. While in Baltimore I had the pleasure of meeting one of these gentlemen, and I can assure you that no young head of a family was ever more delighted with his new cottage in a suburb his wife, his children, his garden, and his collie puppy, then was this engineer with his boulevard sewer, like a lover, he carried pictures of it in his pocket, and like a lover he would assure you that it was, not like other sewers, nor could he speak of it without beginning to wish to take you out to see it not merely for a motor ride along the top of it, either, remember his hospitality did not stop there, when he invited you to a sewer he invited you in, and if you went in with him, no one could make you come out until you wanted to, as he told my companion and me of the three great tubes, the walks beside them, the conduits for gas and electricity, and all the other wonders of the place, I began to wish that we might go with him, for, though we had been to a good many places together, this was something new, it was the first time we had ever been invited to drop into a sewer and make ourselves as much at home as though we lived there, my companion, however, seemed unsympathetic to the project, sewers, you know, he said, when I taxed him with indifference, have come to have a very definite place in both the literary and the graphic arts, how do you propose to treat it, what do you mean, when you write about it, are you going to write about it as a realist, a mystic, or a romanticist, I said I didn't know, well, a man who is going to write of a sewer ought to know, he told me severely, you're not up to sewers yet, they're too big for you, if you take my advice you'll keep out of the sewers for the present and stick to the gutters, so I did, chapter V Terrapin and Things Baltimore Society has a Maryland and Virginia base, 
but is seasoned with families of Acadian descent, and with others descended from the Pennsylvania Dutch those, Dutch, who, by the way, are not Dutch at all, being of Saxon and Bavarian extraction, many Virginians settled in Baltimore after the war, and it may be in part owing to this fact, that fox hunting with horse and hound, as practiced for three centuries past in England, and for nearly two centuries by Virginia's country gentlemen, is carried on extensively in the neighborhood of Baltimore, by the Green Spring Valley Hunt Club, the Elkridge Fox Hunting Club and some others which brings me to the subject of clubs in general, the Baltimore Country Club, at Roland Park, just beyond the city limits, has a large, well-set clubhouse, an active membership, and charming rolling golf links, one peculiarity of the course being that a part of the city's water supply system has been utilized for hazards, the two characteristic clubs of the city itself, the Maryland Club and the Baltimore Club, are known the country over, the former occupies a position in Baltimore comparable with that of the Union Club in New York, the Chicago Club in Chicago, or the Pacific Union in San Francisco, and has to its credit at least one famous dish, Terrapin, Maryland Club style, the Baltimore Club is used by a younger group of men and has a particularly pleasant home in a large mansion, formerly the residence of the Abel family, long known in connection with that noteworthy old sheet, the Baltimore, Sunday, which, it may be remarked in passing, is curiously referred to by many Baltimoreans, not as the, Sunday, but as the, Sun paper, the Sun item reminds me of another, in the Baltai telephone book I chanced to notice under the letter, F, the entry, Fisher, Frank, of J, upon inquiry I learned that the significance of this was that, there being more than one gentleman of the name of Frank Fisher in the city, this Mr. Frank Fisher added, of J, to his name meaning, son of John, for purposes of differentiation, I was informed further that this custom is not uncommon in Baltimore, in cases where a name is duplicated, and I was shown another example, that of Mr. John Fine Symington of a typically southern institution of long standing, and highly characteristic of the social life of Baltimore, is the Bachelor's Cotillion, one of the oldest dancing clubs in the country. During the season this organization gives a series of some half-dozen balls which are the events of the fashionable year. The organization and general character of the Bachelor's Cotillion is not unlike that of the celebrated St. Cecilia Society of Charleston. The cost of membership is so slight that almost any eligible young man can easily afford it. Their island however, a long waiting list. The club is controlled by a board of governors, the members of which hold of, 